I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Romans chapters 9 through 12. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We begin today's reading with Romans chapter 9. It deals with Israel's spiritual position before God. There's not a more thorough chapter in Scripture that more clearly defines the doctrine of God's foreknowledge, election, and predestination than than does Romans chapter 9. Admittedly, God's attribute of omniscience is a paradox, but only because of our inability to conceptualize it. No conclusive discussion on the issue can be settled without the inclusion of this chapter, and I mean the whole chapter. Let's begin reading with verse 1, chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. For the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has led us through the process of sin, salvation, security, and perseverance for believers. Now, with those principles firmly established, Paul begins a discussion of the spiritual position of Israel before God. In this chapter, he goes to great measures to show a distinction between the physical promises made to Israel and the spiritual promises made by God to Abraham's seed. That difference is not clear in the minds of many Christians today. Paul begins by expressing his great burden for his blood kinsman, Israel, in verses 1 through 3, even to the point of a willingness, if it were possible, to sacrifice his own spiritual state of salvation in exchange for the spiritual safety of his Jewish kinsman. He says that in verse 3. Here he mentions them as beneficiaries of a national physical blessing, or should I say blessings, but not as beneficiaries of eternal life. He is careful to point out in verse 5 that the Messiah was born from their lineage. So here's what Paul says regarding the Israelites in verses 4 and 5. First of all, he references the Israelites as being the ones to whom pertain the adoption. Exodus 4 verse 22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Then he talks about the glory. Exodus chapter 16 verse 10 says, Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That's the Shekinah glory, and that hovered over Israel, meaning they were God's people. Then he talks about the covenants, the covenants of Israel. He, of course, would be referencing the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And then throw on top of that the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. And then, of course, it was the giving of the law that was done for the Israelites. See the notes on Exodus chapters 19 and 20 for more detail there. 
Then he also references the service of God. The Levites would be in view here, and we see those in Exodus chapters 28 and 29. And then he says, and the promises, talking about all the messianic promises of the Old Testament. And by the way, Moses prophesied the Messiah. I've written an article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. You can look at it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Then he says, regarding the Israelites, of whom are the fathers? The Israelites were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, being the fathers. And then finally he says, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Jesus, of course, was born from Jewish lineage. We see that in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Now, I should point out again that these are national attributes, not spiritual attributes. You can't understand this chapter without understanding the difference between national attributes and spiritual attributes with regard to Israel. Nationally, God has promised to physically prosper Israel and its people. Yet that promise does not invalidate the personal need for every Jew or Gentile to establish a personal spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do not get national physical blessings confused with personal spiritual blessings. They are different in outcome. Continuing now with verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated." So here in verses 6 through 13, Paul explains that just because you are the descendant of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean that you have leverage with God. He specifically alludes to the fact that neither Ishmael nor Esau were included in the special blessings that were given to Isaac and Jacob. The promise to Abraham was specifically directed through Isaac over Ishmael in Genesis chapter 21 and later through Jacob over Esau. In Genesis chapter 28. In verse 12, Paul refers to Genesis 25:23 and quotes exactly the Septuagint of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He does so in verse 13. Paul's point here is that God knew and prophesied before these guys were born through which of them would bring the physical blessing of a whole nation, Israel. Therefore, the physical blessings of national prosperity were not assigned to all of Abraham's descendants, nor through all of Isaac's descendants. Likewise, on the personal spiritual level, all born of Israel do not have a reservation in heaven simply because of their Jewishness. They must be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as well. And that's Paul's point here. The comparative usage of the word hate, the Greek word meseo, has caused concern to many. 
Jesus used the term similarly in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he challenged would-be disciples to count the cost of discipleship as it meant forsaking family in lieu of a grueling road of service that would soon lead to the death on the cross of the discipler himself. Just as there, Paul is comparatively demonstrating that Jacob received the seed blessing of Abraham in verse 13, Esau did not based upon Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This love-hate analogy is extracted directly, without revision, from Malachi's words as has been translated by the Old Testament Septuagint. So, we continue now reading with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Well, beginning with verse 14 here, we see that Paul deals with the that's not fair issue of the whole selection process. From man's perspective, if God knew before they were born which of the two, Jacob or Esau, would receive the birthright, then that really doesn't seem fair. Yet, keep in mind, God is omniscient. He knows every intricate detail of everyone's future. As it happens, God doesn't abuse that attribute like well, like we would if we were omniscient. I mean, some of us would probably use omniscience to go buy a lottery ticket. God did not cause Jacob to negotiate Esau out of his birthright, but he did know that it would happen in advance even before their birth. Look at the notes on Genesis chapter 27 if you'd like more insight into that. Incidentally, the King James Version translates the God forbid in verse 14 from the Greek term megenoita. It's based upon a figure of speech widely used in 1611 when they said, God forbid, when someone during that era intended to express the sentiment, absolutely not, they often use those words, God forbid. The Greek word for God isn't actually found in this phrase. And if you want to know more about that, I go into greater detail with regard to the God forbid usage in the King James Version in the Romans chapter 6, verse 15 passage. The New King James Version here translates meganoita as certainly not. Paul is working hard to make certain his readers understand the God-ordained selection and rejection process, so here we have yet another example in Pharaoh in verses 15 through 18. What caused that man to be such a stinker to God's people, Israel? Well, incidentally, Paul quotes from Exodus 33:19 in verse 15. In verse 17, Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. There could be no question about what happened between Pharaoh and Israel. As a matter of fact, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I've listed 18 references, different verses from the book of Exodus, beginning with Exodus 4.21, down through Exodus chapter 14, verse 8, that shows that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that caused him not to let the people go. So I guess you see the point. Pharaoh's heart was hard toward Israel, and God was responsible for making it hard. Now, here's the explanation as I see it. God knew from creation that a man, Pharaoh, would be used as his instrument to challenge the people of Israel. God knows everything about the future. I mean, remember, he's omniscient. 
He knew that early in Pharaoh's life he would reject the one true God and go after strange gods instead. So when it came to Israel's release, God did harden Pharaoh's heart that he might show his power to deliver to the people of the nation of Israel. Even when Pharaoh's resolve weakened during the course of the plagues, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Again, why? So that he could show his power to the people of Israel. We continue now with verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Well, let's review. We saw Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau in verses 6 through 13. Then we saw an explanation concerning Pharaoh in verses 14 through 18. Now Paul then deals with the that's not fair issue of these situations and others in verses 19 to 29. Paul, in essence, says in these verses, I don't really understand how God's omniscience works, but I know that God is just. He points out that without omniscience ourselves, we can't really comprehend its vast implications. While it may seem unjust to us, we defer to God's wisdom and know that it's not. Then the application of this truth, God calls believers to salvation. So, is it arbitrary? Well, Men who try to oversimplify omniscience conclude that it is, but not me. While I can't mentally separate the concept of omniscience from divine selection, God can distinguish them. That doesn't make God unfair, it just means I'm stupid compared to God. I just know that Romans 10.13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, who's salvation for? Well, it's for everyone. First John 2, 2 says, And he himself, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It just so happens that the God who revealed the revelation of John, outlining with great detail the events in our earth's future, also knows already who will be saved during that time as well as now. I can't grasp that kind of foreknowledge, but I do accept that God possesses it. Who believes that the so-called Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, will get saved? Well, nobody who's read the book of Revelation, John's prophecy, nobody believes the Antichrist will get saved. Why? 
because of John, he says that the Antichrist will battle against Jesus Christ. Based upon my understanding of the principles of God's foreknowledge, it's my opinion that the Antichrist will be one who will choose to reject Jesus Christ as his personal Savior at some point earlier in his life. And like Pharaoh, his heart will be hardened by God. Now, with regard to foreknowledge, there's one more point worth noting here. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 12, and other places, we see Jeremiah prophesying, this is around 600 B.C., prophesying to Jerusalem and Judah that they should turn back to God and avoid God's judgment. Now, this is interesting. Listen closely. However, this is 100 years or so after Isaiah in 700 B.C. He prophesied in Isaiah 39 that Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians because they would not repent. So, you see, God knew they wouldn't repent, but nonetheless inspired Jeremiah as well as Ezekiel to extend the invitation to them anyway to avoid the judgment of God. Could they have repented? Well, yes, but God knew they wouldn't, just like Pharaoh. That's foreknowledge at work. Now, with that said, I'm fully convinced that God prefers to save every person on the face of this earth. According to Romans 10:13, 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 John 2, 2. But many will decline salvation, and God knows who those people are. So here's the deal. I don't know who they are. My responsibility is to regard everyone I meet as a candidate for salvation. With all that explanation, some are still looking over chapter 9 and scratching their heads. For you, may I make this plea? Can we just accept it as a natural mind paradox and move on? Can we just acknowledge that this whole notion of what it would be like to have omniscience as God does is a brain exploder to our human four-dimensional minds? There are some concepts that simply can't be fully comprehended without the mind of God. This issue of foreknowledge, election, and predestination is simply one of those concepts. Imagine how Jeremiah must have felt when he was pleading with the people to turn to God, but knew from Isaiah's prophecy that it wasn't going to happen. Yet Jeremiah didn't miss a beat in his efforts to go and preach a message of repentance to Israel. In verses 24 through 26, Paul refers to Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, which actually deals with the reversal in Israel's status from being called not my people, in Hosea 1.9, to being restored. But in verse 25, Paul broadens the application to include Gentiles also. Then in verses 27 through 29, Paul turns to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, where the prophecy assures that a remnant of them will return, and I quote that. In this, Paul expresses thankfulness for the minority of Jews who will embrace the gospel and be saved. Then Paul tops it off with a quotation regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, taken from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Continue now with verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So finally, in verses 30 to 33, Paul points out that Israel stumbled over the concept of righteousness attained through faith. 
They just did not embrace it. The passage Paul quotes in verse 33 is a combination of Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 with regard to the gospel being a stumbling block to the Jews. He continues the discussion of Israel's spiritual shortcomings in the next chapter. So to sum it up, chapter 9, here's the essence of what Paul's just expressed. We don't have the mind of God, not Paul, not us. Therefore, as hard as we try, without the attribute of omniscience, possessed only by God, we'll always reason that there seems to be something a little bit unfair about the workings of God's sovereignty. Paul's point to be taken in chapter 9 is that our failure to understand is not God's fault, it's our fault. Therefore, we'll just trust God that his judgment of the saved and condemnation of the lost is completely fair. And that brings us to chapter 10. We see here that Israel needs salvation. Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is very clear here. Israel is, for the most part, a nation of people in a state of rejection with regard to Jesus as the Messiah. Their attempts at righteousness are misdirected, as he points out in verse 2, when he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul expresses a great burden for his fellow Israelites because they do not realize that righteousness only comes through Christ. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, just as he said he would in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In verses 5 through 13 of chapter 10, we see that the message of salvation is universal. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. With regard to the Old Testament law, Paul quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, here in verse 5 of this passage regarding keeping the commandments. Then he moves on to grace. Salvation is easy. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 here. He does so in verses 6 through 8 to show the simplicity of just obeying God. These verses proclaim that it's not about what a person can do, but simply trusting Christ as Savior. That's what constitutes salvation. Some simple action item verses are found here, beginning with verse 9. Salvation is a personal, born-again experience. We see that in 1 Peter 1, 23 and John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And it's supernaturally achieved, talking about salvation, 
when one experiences this transformation of the Holy Spirit as a result of calling upon the name of the Lord in prayer for salvation. Prayer for salvation is not a daily activity, and it doesn't need to be done every day just once. When a person is born again as a result of the salvation prayer, he becomes a member of God's family, which we call the body of Christ. It's not individual church membership, but a spiritual entrance into a covenant relationship with God that's eternal. It's all done by an act of faith and trusting Christ as Savior in prayer, one time, once for all. Verses 9 and 10 merit some additional explanation here. Keep in mind that this is a challenge to the Jews. You must not look over this mission of chapters 9 through 11. It's a message to the Jews to deal with the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Their lack of faith included two denials on their part. The first of those denials was the confession of Jesus as Lord, and secondly, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus as Lord here, without question, refers to Jesus' identification as the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament has a couple of different words. One is Adonai, which means Lord or Master. The other is Jehovah or Yahweh, which is the unique name of the God of Israel, Jehovah. Now, the fact that verse 13, when it uses the word Lord, means Jehovah can be actually validated can be proved from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. We're going to discuss that more fully in just a few moments. Secondly, the resurrection from the dead validates the eternal power and Godhead of Jesus Christ. Only a living Jesus can one day serve as the Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So this very specific invitation to salvation here includes those two issues of denial for unbelieving Jews. Again, let's go over those. The Jews in that day and today deny that Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, and they also deny his resurrection. That's enabling him to fulfill messianic prophecy. Paul and Peter often customize their invitations for their particular audience. Paul then provides a near Septuagint quote of Isaiah 28:16 in verse 11, and he quotes exactly Joel 2:32 when he says in verse 13, "For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." As we talked about earlier, the dual meaning of the Greek word for Lord, uh, sometimes it means Adonai, Master, sometimes it means Jehovah. The Hebrew word Lord in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, is the word Jehovah, also pronounced Yahweh. As a matter of fact, Romans 10, 13 is an exact quotation of the Septuagint of Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So we know that it is a Jehovah reference and that's to whom those Jews in the imitation must acknowledge that Jesus is Jehovah. We see in verses 14 through 21 that it's a mission field. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, 
I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, the message of salvation must be heard, we see in verse 14, as Paul asked three rhetorical questions, and a fourth in verse 15. Paul then answers these questions with a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. He does so in verse 15, regarding the pleasure God receives when someone carries the gospel to another person. He then points out that Isaiah had prophesied a rejection of the gospel by Israel when here he quotes Isaiah 53.1. He does so in verse 16. Verse 17 is key here. It says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 adds to this concept, which says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's what these two verses mean. God's word is an offensive weapon. People come to trust Christ as a result of hearing the word of God. It doesn't matter what people believe about the word of God. Use it anyway. It's the supernatural tool of God that brings a person to a faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul in verse 19 quotes from the Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21. That's to demonstrate that it's no surprise that Israel has rejected the Christ. He then quotes again from Isaiah chapter 65 verses 1 and 2 regarding this rejection in verses 20 and 21. Now, let me just say with all these quotations from the Old Testament that it'd be hard just to listen to this without looking at the notes to really get the full impact of the fact that these three chapters are Jewish chapters and all of these Old Testament quotations prove that. Is this chapter, this passage rich in Judaism or what? Just look at all of these Old Testament quotations packed into chapters 9 and 10. These two chapters are designed to show that Israel had their chance But just as was prophesied, they passed on their chance. Brings us to chapter 11. So what about those promises to Israel anyway? Verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying... Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always." Paul answers a question here with a lesson from history. 
even though Israel was chosen of God as the people through whom God would manifest his glory, what is their condition now? Are they abandoned? No. He cites the deprivation of Israel during Elijah's tenure as God's prophet in 1 Kings chapter 19. Paul points out that God preserved a meager 7,000 righteous in Israel among all those idolaters in Elijah's day. Even so, God has preserved Israel through a few saved-by-grace Jewish believers in Paul's day. Two verses of clarity need to be viewed very closely here as Paul compares believing remnant Jews of his day to those of Elijah's day. Here's what he says in verses 5 and 6. Let's read them again. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. So here's the big question in verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In other words, the Jews looked for the Messiah, He came, but only a few received Jesus while the rest were blinded, just like Pharaoh in chapter 9. Paul then, in verse 8, weaves together two passages, Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10, so as to provide examples from two periods of the same kind of rejection in Israel's history. In verses 9 and 10, he tops it off with a quote from David in Psalm 69.22 regarding this snare to the Jews. Now answer this question for me. How can Paul be so very, very clear about the fact that grace does not mix with works as a basis for salvation, but Christians today are still mixed up on the subject? Why is it that many teach that salvation is by grace, but something besides faith is required to consummate the deal? Why is it that many teach that salvation is by grace, but some work? must be done in order to preserve that salvation. In light of Paul's adamant comments about grace and faith not mixing, how can people attempt to modify God's plan? Just quote them Romans 11 verses 5 and 6. If it's by grace, and it is, then it simply can't have anything to do with works. Then in verses 11 through 24 of chapter 11, Paul gives an illustration from horticulture. Chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches." But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. 
on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, here Paul proposes an interesting analogy of the Gentiles being grafted in after the fact. His point is that while many Jews did not pursue God, Gentiles have been raised up and grafted in to become part of God's family of believers. Now we are all blessed by grace through the shed blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whether the Jews like it or not, God's favored folks are now those who have trusted Christ by faith. Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible explains this analogy like this, and I quote, When Israel rejected Jesus Christ, the nation lost her favored position before God, and the gospel was then preached also to Gentiles. Hopefully the Jews would become jealous and be saved. But the casting off is only temporary. When the Lord returns, the Jewish people will be regathered, judged, restored to favor, and redeemed, according to verse 26. This will be for them life from the dead. The olive tree is the place of privilege that was first occupied by the natural branches, the Jews. The wild branches are Gentiles who, because of the unbelief of Israel, now occupy the place of privilege. The root of the tree is the Abrahamic covenant that promised blessing to both Jew and Gentile through Christ. And that's the end of the quote from Rari Study Bible. Paul emphasizes that it's not too late for the Jews to return to Christ and accept, thus being grafted back in themselves. Now in verses 25 and 26, we have a new term, the fullness of the Gentiles. Let's read those two verses. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In these two verses, we see some prophecy unfolding from Paul. He's already told us about Israel's blindness with regard to the gospel message. Now he addresses the length of this rejection on their part, and he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Greek word for Gentiles here is ethnos. It's a frequent reference to non-Jewish people in the New Testament. Verse 26 goes on to further identify what happens when this fullness has taken place. It says, all Israel will be saved. Paul makes reference to some Old Testament passages to validate his point. He uses Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 and Isaiah 27, verse 9. Those are verses that project Israel's return to God as a national entity when the Messiah will reign. That makes identification of the fullness of the Gentiles easy. It's after Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That's the end of the Battle of Armageddon. It's at that point that the millennial reign begins with only saved people inhabiting the earth. The rest will have been wiped out in the battle. And the Messiah will be reigning over Israel and the entire world. This is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, out with Gentile domination, in with Jewish Messiah domination, as you see, the fullness of the Gentiles. From the beginning of the millennial, this, by the way, is per the Davidic covenant, and 
you want to know more about that, then look at my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled The Davidic Covenant. From the beginning of the millennium forward, all Israel will enjoy salvation under the terms of the new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The rebellion that takes place at the end of the millennium, found in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, consists only of Gentile nations. No Jews are specified there. Then we find more about the promise. A promise is a promise in verses 27 through 29. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul then explains that God made a promise to Israel that he must keep. Verse 27 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 21, and it's continued from the preceding verse. They've positioned themselves as the enemies of the gospel, but nonetheless, God made a promise, a covenant to them as a nation anyway, the nation of Israel. Then we see an oft-misused verse, verse 29. It says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This verse says that with God, a promise is a promise. When God says He'll do something, He can't fail to do it. He promised to restore Israel. He cannot fail to do so. So let's be clear here about the fulfillment of this promise that God made to Israel. God promised Israel to restore the throne of David. It just so happens that this prophecy will be fulfilled with the messianic rule at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now let's continue reading with Romans chapter 11, verses 30 through 36. Verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, we see a role reversal in verses 30 to 32. In the past, the Jews were favored by God and not the Gentiles. However, today, Gentiles have embraced the gospel and we're praying for the salvation of the Jews. Does this changing of roles seem kind of funny to you? Well, in verses 33 to 36, Paul expresses just that sentiment, leading him to conclude, and his ways past finding out, talking about God's ways. That's not really an original thought with Paul. He's really gleaning from Isaiah's prophecy to Israel in Isaiah chapter 55. There, Isaiah prophesies regarding the appeal that will be made by the Messiah to the Gentiles for salvation. The millennium will not be inhabited by only Jewish people, but by all the righteous coming out of the tribulation, Jew or Gentile. That brings us to chapter 12, where we start this chapter talking about a living sacrifice. Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, we're back from a three-chapter trip down memory lane with the God-rejecting Jews. Paul makes a contrast here. 
The Jews were still into making burnt sacrifices of innocent animals, even though the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, had been made on the cross. Believers are to present their own bodies, not that of an innocent animal, their own bodies as living sacrifices, bodies that are committed to God's service. Well, how's that done? Verse 2 says that this is done when we stop conforming to the world and let the transforming power of the Holy Spirit direct our lifestyle as living sacrifices. I have a saying that, well, at least amuses me with its conciseness, and here it is. The only problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. By that, I mean that many Christians go through periods of their lives when they are completely committed to God's service only to find months or years later that they've backed off from that commitment. When Paul says in verse 2, and do not be conformed, he's talking about a continuing relationship with God as a living sacrifice, which sustains a continuing attitude towards our world order from God's perspective. Now just remember the contrast. Observant Jews killed a sacrifice as an offering to God. But committed Christians present themselves to God, not as dead offerings, but as living sacrifices. We find in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12 that sometimes you can be just too proud. Verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Well, here Paul deals with the diversity of spiritual gifting among believers. In my opinion, these gifts in verses 6-8 through eight have been way over-taught by teachers over the years. Even I have spent two successive Sunday morning messages in the past just teaching these three verses. While it's interesting to peruse the list of gifts here and begin to assign them to our friends and loved ones, Paul's main emphasis is that different believers exercise their faith in Christian service in several diverse ways. He presents this list to show those diverse ways and to prevent one believer from thinking that he's more important to the body of Christ than another. Now, let me emphasize that these gifts of the Spirit are not equivalent to personality tendencies or temperaments. These gifts represent the service a believer renders when he is full of the Holy Spirit and therefore led by the Holy Spirit. So let's have a look at the list of verses 6 through 8. We have prophecy. It says, prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, strictly speaking, the Greek word for prophecy, prophetia, it involves receiving direct, fresh revelation from God. Prior to the completion of the written word, our Bible, this gift apparently was used extensively in the local church. Look at my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 for more details there. Now, pay particular attention to the comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, as you look at those notes. The phrase, in proportion to our faith, emphasizes the absolute necessity of being certain that one's words of prophecy are unquestionably those prompted directly by God. Then the second is mentioned here is ministry. And it says, ministry, let us use it in our ministering. The Greek word diakonia, 
means service, means ministering is service. And then it says, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, exhortation being a ministry of encouragement, he who gives with liberality, especially if you're a preacher, you got to love the givers. And then he who leads with diligence, the Greek verb praistemi, uh, there means to stand before or preside with diligence. The Greek spude emphasizes the gravity of that rule. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then there are those who are gifted in joyfully extending mercy to those in need. Now, the attributes in this list have often been referred to as motivational gifts, what a believer is motivated to do by the Holy Spirit. The gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 have often been classified as manifestation gifts. Their purpose and place are different. For perspective, you may want to take a look at the gifted people of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 also. Now, if you want a complete view of spiritual gifting, then you need to look at 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 verse 11 particularly, and that should be studied along with these three verses in Romans chapter 12. Then we have the positive believer attributes that Paul outlines beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do you look for in a believer who is led by the Holy Spirit? Well, besides the gifts of verses 6 through 8, certain attributes are going to identify spirit-led believers. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says the following, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This is what people see in a believer who's being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. When Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, when those verses are working in a believer's life, the challenges of verses 9 through 21, well, they're pretty much not challenges at all. The Holy Spirit takes control and overcomes those. Inversely, however, show me a professing Christian struggling with the admonitions of verses 9 through 21, and I'll tell you that they are really suffering spiritually in their lives they don't have any leadership of the Holy Spirit. When a believer exercises good spiritual hygiene, the pesky attributes of our old nature are subdued by the Holy Spirit's power. What are these action items of good spiritual hygiene? Well, it's simple, really. Reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with the believers. Church is a great place for that, by the way. And involvement in ministry that results in sharing your faith. 
Do those things regularly and victory will fall into place in your Christian life. If you'd like to know more about that, then read the article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, How to Develop Good Spiritual Hygiene. So, from verses 9 through 21, we see that a victorious Holy Spirit-led believer will be without hypocrisy. He'll abhor what is evil. He'll cling to what is good. He'll be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. He'll not be lagging in diligence. He'll be fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. He'll be rejoicing in hope means the confident expectation of Jesus' return. He'll be patient in tribulation, and remember, tribulation brings about patience. He'll be continuing steadfastly in prayer. He'll be distributing to the needs of the saints and given the hospitality. In other words, he'll be sharing with believers. He'll bless those who persecute him and bless and do not curse. He'll rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He won't be repaying evil for evil. He'll have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And then he says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what the Holy Spirit will lead you to do. And then finally, he closes out by saying, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. By the way, that coals of fire on his head. That's taken right out of Proverbs chapter 25, verse 22. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all these things, by the way, will come naturally when a person is led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.